Welcome back to The Common Christian Diet. I'm Paige, and this is episode number eight. Special thanks to Debbie Forrest for letting me use her music. You can find her on Spotify and iTunes. Today, we are going to talk about the word diet. So I named this episode, Diet is a Four-Letter Word. When people say, I need to go on a diet, it's generally not said with a lot of joy and happiness. Going on a diet is nearly always considered to be a negative experience where we focus on restricting our intake, giving up foods we enjoy, feeling hungry or deprived, and maybe even being coerced into eating new foods like kale and tofu. But when someone starts a diet, what exactly does that look like? We assume it's bad without understanding the particulars. For instance, if I'm planning to start a diet first thing in the morning, what I'm preparing for breakfast depends on the type of diet I've chosen to follow. If my diet restricts high-fat meats and saturated fats, I might be having oatmeal with fruit and toast. If I'm trying a low-carb strategy, I might be making turkey sausage and eggs. Now, how can both of those strategies be completely different and still both be considered a diet? I could go on and compare other methods where on one diet I might be eating six small meals a day, or if I'm following intermittent fasting, I might be skipping meals altogether and only eating during certain hours of the day. On a Daniel diet, I might not eat any meat, or on a high-protein diet, the majority of my calories may come from meat. Some methods have me measuring all my foods and counting calories, but other diets allow me to eat as much as I want as long as I only choose foods from a particular list. Then there are some people that can go on a diet simply by eating smaller portions or skipping dessert or switching to sugar-free alternatives. The word diet makes people cringe, but what does it mean exactly? The truth is that dieting is as diverse as eating. So why do we still assume we hate it? Even if people enjoy the food they are eating, they can still find dieting difficult for a wide variety of reasons. The roadblocks we face have a lot to do with our situation, our habits, and personality types. Here are just a few examples of what I mean. In general, most people don't like change, so just the idea of doing something different is a mental roadblock. Some people are okay with change, but are bad at planning things out. These people struggle sticking to a meal plan because, well, they have no plan. Other dieters are good at planning, but lack discipline. They'll spend a whole day meal planning and stocking their refrigerator with a week's worth of healthy food. They do great for the first day or two, but without discipline, by Wednesday they're shoving those containers to the back of the fridge to make room for leftover pizza. Now some people are disciplined, but they lack knowledge. These people have no problem eating the same food day after day, but their roadblock is figuring out which diet plan is the right one to meet their needs. Other people have found the perfect diet plan, but can't afford to order the recommended prepackaged meals. Some dieters struggle because their job has them eating out every night with clients. Then there's the parents who try to be healthy, but can't keep their hands out of the kids' animal crackers. And we can't forget to mention other roadblocks, like cravings and stress and hormones and emotional mood swings that can take even the most well-planned, disciplined dieter and send them straight to the grocery store for ho-hos and ice cream. So why do we even try? That's actually a good question because our motivation for dieting is a really important factor in our success. Sometimes we start our diet with a great attitude and our goal is all about improving ourselves. We are driven to lose weight, look good in that new outfit, tone our muscles, feel better, sleep better, have more energy, avoid buying fat clothes, or even prove something to the bully who made fun of us back in the eighth grade. 
Some of us start dieting to show support for a friend or a loved one who's trying to lose weight. For others, a diet represents a fresh start in life. But for some, a new diet might be the result of a bad report from the doctor. Heart disease, high cholesterol, obesity, stroke, diabetes. We knew we weren't eating right, but we didn't realize it was this bad. When people find themselves in this situation, it can motivate people to eat better and change their lifestyle, but it can also be terrifying and trigger negative emotions like depression, fear, or a feeling of hopelessness. But no matter why we started the diet in the first place, our attitude affects how we see and handle our challenges. For instance, if I have a negative attitude toward dieting, it can make me feel restricted. I'll crave everything I can't have, and I'll resent anyone who eats what I want to eat. I'll be in a bad mood, and I'll be hungry all the time because I will spend all day thinking about food. I'll feel controlled by my diet, and no matter what diet plan I'm following, I'll be tempted to break the rules. If I have a positive attitude toward dieting, then I will know I am in control of my diet and my restrictions. I'm not a victim. I'm the one making choices. If I find the diet rules don't suit my personality or my lifestyle, then I am free to alter my choices. If I'm not losing weight, I need to ask myself some hard questions. Is this the right diet? Am I sticking to the plan? Are my portions in control? How's my water intake and exercise? Then, if I'm honest with myself, I'll keep modifying my habits until I start seeing the results I need. It may not work immediately, but I'll have long-term success. Let's say I'm on a new diet and I have no problem sticking to the plan for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But in the evenings, when I curl up with my family on the couch to watch TV, I always blow it. One by one, my family members make their way to the kitchen for snacks, and all I can think about is how unfair it is that everyone gets to eat Cool Ranch Doritos while I snack on an ice cube. It's not wrong to crave Doritos, but if I have a positive attitude toward my diet, then I will look for ways to beat the craving and still be able to enjoy family time. I can explore options like chewing gum, drinking tea, or sucking on a breath mint to minimize my urge to eat. I could move dinner to a later time or drink a large glass of water right before TV time so my stomach will be full. If none of those ideas work, when my family reaches for junk food, I can choose a healthy, low-calorie snack like light popcorn or sugar-free popsicles. The point is, I will keep trying until I find something that works. In its simplest form, dieting is just about making specific food choices. In general, people hate dieting, but diet plans vary drastically from one to another and they are not all terrible. Now, I do want to acknowledge that there are diets that should not be followed. Some diet plans are so extreme that they aren't healthy. Diets that limit calories to less than 1,000 per day or eliminate an entire food group can be dangerous and should be avoided. But there are plenty of healthy options out there that will work no matter what our personality type or personal roadblocks are. Diet does not have to be a four-letter word. Now, in the Bible, there are a lot of words and phrases that we love to hate. Just to give a few examples, the Bible tells us to be humble, love our enemies, and fear the Lord. Our 21st century American culture hates all those things because we celebrate independence and self-achievements. We think if we are humble, we won't be successful because good guys finish last. We refuse to love our enemy because they don't deserve it. And many of us don't fear God because we don't even understand what that means. Oftentimes, we approach things we read in the Bible the same way we approach the word diet. We don't know exactly what it means, but we assume we don't like it. This attitude can lead us away from God's word and away from the healthy lifestyle of following Christ. 
A better approach is to assume God's word is correct and we just aren't sure how to apply it to our lives. This attitude leads us to trust God's word and keep reading it and wrestling with it until we figure out how to apply it to our lives. The next story I want to tell is about the moment God's word opened my eyes to some truth. If you remember where my last story ended, I had been divorced for seven years, raising a young boy on my own, and God had just separated me from my friends. It was the loneliest time of my life. I used those months to draw closer to God and seek his direction. I was going to church, reading my Bible, and praying more than I had ever prayed before. But before God could answer my prayers, he needed to prepare me for my future. This story is called The Strength of Submission. I remember watching weddings as a young girl wondering why women ever wanted the word obey in their vows. I grew up in the 80s listening to all the stereotypes about men and women feeling as if I somehow didn't fit the mold. I remember sitting in elementary school wondering why I wasn't supposed to be as strong in math as my masculine classmates. In high school, I heard how important it was to learn to cook if I ever wanted to get married. After graduation, I was often surprised at people's reactions when I told them I was planning to study engineering. That's unusual, one woman muttered, for a, a, girl? I finished her sentence for her as if I was asking a question, but I heard similar comments enough times to know the answer. I wasn't trying to make women better than men, but I never understood the perceived relationship between my ovaries and my grade in calculus. Despite all the helpful suggestions, I enrolled in engineering school at age 17, where girls were outnumbered 3 to 1. While this proved rather helpful in the dating scene, it also contributed to the stereotypes we all grew up with, and it had the potential to make a woman question her choice of majors, if she let it. In my case, it made me more determined to excel. I took my studies very seriously and accepted a great job offer midway through my senior year. But along the path of hard work, I developed some calluses towards relationships. My will to do was stronger than my need for companionship. My spirit of success was alive and well, but my passion for husband and family was tucked away for a later date. My idea of success was a promotion or tackling the next personal challenge. While I enjoyed dating, my entire concept of marriage was simply two people who liked each other enough to hang out for a really long time. For many years, I held an immature vision of marriage and lived under the impression that only weaker women submitted to their husbands. I was 36, and not surprisingly divorced, before I heard the sermon about submissive wives that changed my perspective. God had already been working on my heart for him, but this was a big first step in preparing me for the husband he had chosen for me. God made sure I was in the pew that day to listen to a sermon on Ephesians. Ephesians is like an instruction book for Christian families. The message wasn't focused on either men or women, but on God's will for marriages. A holy union between two people who are not the same, but are combined in a way that is pleasing to God. And it clearly states Christian wives must submit to their husbands. Likewise, husbands must love their wives according to God's intentions. We love them first, they love us first. Amazingly simple. Not a man-made stereotype, but God's true word. As the pastor spoke, I let down my strong-minded female guard and just listened. I sat alone in the pew thinking about the type of marriage I really wanted. I did want a faith-based marriage. 
In my years of dating, I met men with respectable qualities, but never one who had a strong relationship with our Lord. Spiritual, but not religious, they would say, which generally translated into, I call him when I need him. I had been there myself, but as I was working on making God first in my life, I needed to ensure any man I dated shared that priority. As the sermon continued, I pictured myself being submissive. What did that even look like? Would I finally have to learn to cook? Actually, no. God was showing me that being submissive really didn't have much to do with me. It was actually about meeting the man God selected to serve as the spiritual leader of our household and then letting him lead. If God trusted this man with the responsibility of leading our family, who was I to question his qualifications? If this future husband loved God above all else and loved me according to God's intentions, what fear could I have in following him? Submission is not at all about weakness like I had thought for so many years. Submission is about trust in both God and this man I had yet to meet. I thought about my approach to dating over the years. I had searched for a man who would think I was smart, who would respect my job, who would support me in this or that endeavor. As I listened to the sermon, God was making my eyes wide open to the fact that I had only ever been looking for a man who would validate me. I wasn't looking at his qualities as much as I was just making sure he noticed mine. If I was going to have a godly marriage, I needed to be looking for a godly man. It was so simple, I couldn't believe I had missed it all these years. I left church that day with peace in my heart that after seven years of lousy relationships, God did have a husband in mind for me, a man I could truly love, honor, and respect. Now I just had to find him. So I tried the online dating thing again. This time, it was a Christian-based site that matches people together based on preferences from their profiles. Eleven weeks into my three-month membership, I had gone on two dates. I wasn't proactively searching the website for this mystery man because I had convinced myself that God would bring him straight to me. I mean, I was going to be the submissive one after all. But as my membership was about to expire, I decided to do a little research on my options. Who knows? Maybe the algorithms were off just a bit and I needed to locate Mr. Perfect on my own. I sat at my computer and clicked through dozens of profiles. No. 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 Maybe. No. And then yes. Not just yes, but if I contact him, will he even look at my profile? Wow, please look at me. Yes. I read his profile over and over, thinking how wonderful he sounded. He was six foot three, a year younger than me, and really handsome. With only days left in my membership, I couldn't simply wait for him to stumble across my picture and fall immediately in love with me, so I needed to make the first move. But what do I say? Hello, divorced, headstrong engineer looking for a man she could submit to? Probably not the best first impression. Then I reread Mr. Handsome's profile one more time, and I had to laugh. The preferences for his dream woman were listed as five foot three and up. I was officially one inch too short for the man of my dreams, and the website would never have matched us with each other. Suddenly, I knew exactly what to say. I typed a short message introducing myself and hit send. The subject line was tippy toes. My husband would have to write the next few paragraphs to tell his side of the story, but tippy toes was our beginning. At the point I sent the message to him, the only thing he had done on the website was create a profile, and he hadn't even paid for a membership yet. 
Without a paid membership, he could see my picture and knew he had received a message from me, but he couldn't read it or respond. He had to pay $48 for a new membership just so he could find out what tippy toes meant. After several messages and phone calls, we met in person. He was tall and handsome with an honest face and brown eyes that soaked in my every movement. I did most of the talking because I always get chatty when I'm nervous. I rambled about my son, my job, fitness, and any other topic that crossed my mind. I wondered if he was enjoying my stories or just waiting for a chance to excuse himself from the table and not come back. Plus, it was hard to see his facial expressions because we met at a restaurant on a lake and the sun was reflecting off the water directly into my eyes. I was squinting, which meant I had that horrible frown line between my eyebrows. There's no way this man wants a 5 foot 2 inch chatty woman with a frown line. Why can't I stop talking? But his brown eyes continued to watch me with genuine interest, and he seemed more focused on my smile than my squinty eyes. He had a witty personality that exploded when I paused long enough to let him participate in the conversation. Best of all, he talked openly about the importance of his faith, how God had always been there for him and brought him through his darkest days, through tough days in his childhood, during his tours of duty, and through his recent divorce when he felt like everything he loved had been stripped from him. He shared a story about being a teenager who rode his bike to church and asked to be baptized. He told me about the years he sat alone in the pew, wondering if he would ever have a partner that loved God. We began dating, and each came to the relationship with one son. Mine was nine, and his was five. We had a lot to discuss when it came to the children, but the more time we spent together, the more we both knew we were going to get married. We openly talked about it and prayed about it, both together and apart. We began attending church together, and I brought him to my Bible study group to meet all those people who had been praying for me. A pre-marriage class was announced at church, and he asked me if I wanted to attend, even though we weren't actually engaged. But it wasn't long before he bought my ring and made it official. By the time we exchanged vows before God and family, and as I stood on my tippy toes for our first official kiss as husband and wife, we were both confident that we were God's gift to each other. God chose this man to be the leader of our household. God chose me to be a source of strength for him and our marriage by loving and respecting him in every situation. It's been eight years since we said, for better or for worse, and we do have a godly marriage. It's not a perfect Ephesian-style household, but we are both allowing God's word to change us and grow us as individuals and partners. To be fully transparent, I would describe at least three years of our marriage as four worse. But God prepared me in the pew that day to choose to love my husband no matter what because he is the man God chose for me. And when I do that, we always come out stronger. One of the best things God taught me about being a submissive wife is that not everything that's broken is my job to fix. Just as God continues to work on me about many things, he is also working on my husband. It's not my job to fix my husband. It's my job to love, respect, and pray for him. And I must be doing something right, because sometimes, at the most random or mundane moments, my husband will hug me, and while he's resting his chin on the top of my head, he'll whisper, best $48 I ever spent. I love telling the story about how I met my husband. And not just about how I met him, but how God prepared me for marriage. I had some wrong ideas that needed to be corrected to help me make better choices for my relationship. Dieting, in its simplest form, is just making choices about what food we eat. Am I going to eat a little or a lot? Will I pack a lunch or eat fast food? 
If I choose fast food, will I get a greasy cheeseburger or a grilled chicken salad with a light dressing? We have negative opinions about dieting because we don't like restriction, we don't like control, and we don't like denying ourselves anything we want. Our focus is on what we want right now rather than the end goal. But healthy choices lead to healthy habits, and healthy habits lead to a healthy lifestyle. Eventually, after the weight comes off, the cholesterol goes down, and you realize that kale doesn't taste so bad after all, the choices seem worth it, and we wonder why we fought it for so long. It's the same with God's Word. We don't like being told to love our neighbors, to forgive our enemies, or turn the other cheek. We don't want to deny ourselves and take up our cross. We don't want to submit to God or anyone. God's Word seems wrong sometimes because it tells us to be different from the society around us. We are told in the Bible to be separate and to focus on obeying God rather than pleasing people, but it's against our nature. And that's the point. God calls us to go against our nature and learn to be disciplined, to be selfless, to be obedient, and to follow Christ even when it doesn't make sense. God doesn't force us to obey his word any more than the doctor forces a patient to go on a diet. But God's word is always right, and it's always good for us. Obeying God's word starts with a simple choice, which, with practice, becomes a habit and leads to a healthy spiritual lifestyle. Then, eventually, when the weight of the world comes off our shoulders, we wonder why we waited so long. I want to leave you with some scripture from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll come back for the next episode when I talk about life in my new blended family. I'm Paige, and this is The Common Christian Diet. Every day and